Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, hi, everyone. We are here now again recording a new episode. Today, we're going to talk about the relationship that Susie had with Count Ratchandon. We have mentioned that relationship before, but not like we're going to do it today, right, Susie? That's right. You were with him for about a decade, right? A whole decade, in fact. Absolutely. Because I was fortunate enough, I think, to have met him in Closest and uh, seen him again in Paris. But because he, after meeting me in Closest, he always stayed in touch. So I guess already something happened to him. I've often thought, you know, I've often wondered, I was such a young girl and I'd had absolutely no experience with men because I never had a boyfriend. I might have fancied Bill Curran when I was in Marbella. He was he's certainly not a boyfriend because he never picked me up or even made a date with me. Oh, well, you know, come and have lunch tomorrow and we'll see each other tomorrow and this that kind of thing. But that was it. And apart from that, only another person that I used to rid myself of my virginity. But otherwise, I'd never, never had a relationship, a love, a love relationship with anybody. So I was fresh, you know, I had no idea how to handle things. Anyway, so I wonder what happened to Fred that he fell in love with me in this way, because obviously something went tilt, you know, in his mind, in his feelings towards me, which obviously grew and he couldn't resist. It was strange because I definitely felt that I was a breath of fresh air for him as we got to know each other a little bit more because it took him time. It took him a long time to finally wangle me in. You know, it was like he caught a fish or the fish had come in the bit of the bait, but it hadn't actually eaten the bait. So he had to keep on fishing, you know, and he went on testing and fishing and letting it go and bringing it back and bringing it go and bringing it back, that sort of thing, referring to fishing because it wasn't an easy catch. I had no idea I was, he was fishing for a start, but we keep on referring to fishing. When did you realize because, it? Oh, I didn't realize it until literally after living in that flat that he lent me and where I got a friend to come and join me. And when she left and then he would come and take me out again, still, you know, he was still taking me out and stuff. It was just six months later, remember? a long time. And he finally managed to to have a little bit of kisses and things like that. And Because with Fred, it wasn't about sex. Definitely not. It was about being kind, about being generous. Something definitely shifted in his brain with reference to me. And then I just fell for him. I started falling for him, you know, because of his kindness and his generosity and, and he always being there, you know, it was different for me because I've always never had somebody there really because my father, my mother weren't there. And then I was packed off to boarding school. So you're on your own again. 
sort of thing. And then suddenly this relationship starts to appear and a very kind person, very attentive, always taking me to see these wonderful shows and going out to amazing restaurants to eat and have delicious meals and always very attentive. And it was amazing. It really was an amazing relationship, actually. And then after a while, of course, I looked for my own apartment, which I explained, and we lived together there. And then, of course, he didn't ask for my hand in marriage, but when he gave me this amazing ring, which I presume now, thinking back towards that, that moment, was a sort of engagement ring because he had a plan. But then as my mother died and he accompanied me to Marbella, Marbella. Yeah, and to the burial of my mother, and I had no idea, but my brother was there. And he told me many years later, not at that particular moment, that he had actually asked for my hand in marriage, but that he'd had a hysterectomy. You know, I feel I'm repeating myself, but it's just part of the story. I, I had no idea of any of this. One thing he did make clear when we got back, when he'd taken a decision, and I think it was like more or less, I don't want this little fish to escape now that I've caught her and I love her. And I think I would love to spend the rest of my life with her. So he decided that I should look for a flat. And then I found this amazing flat in Saint-Quentin-Saint-Quay-d'Orsay, fixed it up, and we lived together very happily. And we had this wonderful minute. She was amazing, Antonia. She was Portuguese and she was terrific. And she used to cook wonderful meals and look after me. But I knew that Fred must have felt a second use being with me. Because on top, I remember that he used to take some weird stuff every morning. It was a sort of a gooey stuff that he'd drink every morning to cover his, I don't know if it was his stomach or his protector's liver. I don't know. I think it was for the stomach. But he'd take this stuff and he'd drink it down. And then I started noticing that his breakfast wasn't, wasn't ideal. So I started suggesting that he should eat differently, you know, and have some yogurt and we'd make the yogurt at home and I'd make it with Antonia and ask him to serve her a very nice breakfast. And, and he started eating yogurt and stuff. And he started losing weight. He got fitter, feeling better as well. But as I repeat, it was not about sex. It was definitely about caring, about loving, about being there. The only thing that after a while I noticed was that I was part of his agenda. I didn't have an agenda. I didn't really have an agenda because I had my work. I used to go out and model, do the fashion shows. When it was the season of the fashion shows, I'd just do all the fashion shows. You know, and I'd be busy in Milan. I'd be busy here, busy there. And I would do all the fashion. But the fashion shows are over in a couple of months. It doesn't take that long. In a couple of weeks, two or three weeks, in fact. It doesn't really take long. Everyone's flying around all over the place. And so when they were done, that was it. And I would have the odd job to do apart from that. Otherwise, it was his life that I was leading. And that was one of the things that started to worry me because I felt that I lived his life. You know, it was always oh, wonderful flying out in a helicopter because he's, he took up helicopter flying, which meant he had to be a pilot to fly helicopters. And then he also, he got a, a boating license to be able to drive a racing boat. He didn't even tell me about these things. Suddenly we were flying out in a helicopter, whizzing off to Saint-Tropez, raising out in this jumping boat that would jump over the waves and stuff. And we even go all the way to Capri, crossing the seas on this boat. And every morning he would go to the office, rain or shine, you know, he would just put his raincoat on if it was raining, just in his motorbike. And at night, I'd hop on the back of the motorbike, you know, I wouldn't be worried about my hair or my makeup, anything. So all these things made him feel young again. I think that was the thing because, you know, I can imagine being with somebody older, you adapt to the older person's way of being. And it's certainly not going to be that, putting up with any of that. <laughs> yeah, I think so, that relives dopamine and oxytocin on his brain. Like you were giving him like life, yeah. giving him a joyful state of mind. Oh, absolutely. He was delighted. He was the happiest man. You know, he didn't have a worry at all. I remember John Philip Law used to come and stay sometimes because he'd have 
rolls to do or something and he came to stay and he brought me a book of how to plant marijuana which just sat on a shelf in this living room that we had there was a special bibliotheque with an office and thing a beautiful place anyway it just sat on the shelf for several years and then one day I decided to take a look at this little book and see what it says you know so I read the book and I said well look at that it's not complicated to plant marijuana so let's try that out so I, there was some flower pots outside the, the terrace but it was a terrace that was all around the flat and it started off in the last room which we'd converted into a, a laundry room but it wasn't a laundry room it was an ironing room really big huge ironing table and outside it started these long flower pots and there I planted the seeds of marijuana and the marijuana started growing <laughs> and this plant was growing up and I said go and check it out and look at that oh look uh, yeah it's coming along ah this is a feminine one, this is a masculine one, this is the other. So looking at the instructions in the book, of course, every step. At one point, Fred saw the plants and wondered what they were. And he went to the laundry room and he asked Antonia, Antonia, what are those plants growing out there? And she said, ah, senhor, são as papas de Portugal. The potatoes from Portugal, he said. <laughs> so it's so funny because she told me that. And I laughed my head off because I thought, oh, he's not going to believe that, not for one minute. But then he realized she's got a accomplice. She definitely has a accomplice here because she's looking after Susie's interests, you know. So it was quite funny. But it was just a funny thing that happened, you know. And then I had to boil the roots, fish out the plants. Because all these things happened while Fred wasn't there. Right? Fish out the plants, dip them in boiling water, hang them upside down to dry in a bathroom that was just outside the back. It was a staff bathroom. I said, sorry, Antonia, but your bathroom's going to be full of marijuana plants while this thing just dries, you know. Anyway, but we did get along very, very well. We had a wonderful time traveling all over the place. He liked to shoot. So there would be shoots for the, the lapin, the rabbit, and the, another one in Alsace, in the north of France. And then we would go shooting in the countryside for the weekend to drive and to, to shoot. Or different different weekends, of course. We were going to go shooting and driving. Racing cars in Dijon was fun thing. Also, there were trips to Saint-Tropez, always in summer. Every weekend, we would go away. Every single weekend, we would go away. Then there was also two trips a year to Rio de Janeiro. I remember taking the first Concorde to Rio. It was normal that he would be invited because he was one of the jet-set people. And so I was on the trip too, automatically, you see. So it was amazing. Little things like that, which were rather big things, rather amazing experiences. But still, I, I realized, you know, and then another point of the year will be here and we'll go too close to, to ski. The whole year had an agenda of places where we would go, basically for weekends or, or whatever, combined with business trips sometimes too. He had to travel a lot also because <clears throat> of business. Fred was a very successful businessman. He certainly was because the Muette Chandon was a big powerhouse already. It had several businesses in the European offices and he also started other champagne businesses in other countries. Like for instance, in Argentina, they made a champagne, which of course would not be called a champagne, it would be called a sparkling wine of some kind, espumante. In the other countries, it was uh, always referred to as only Chandon, not Muente Chandon, just Chandon. And then we also were going constantly to Brazil, and he thought of putting a company there to make the champagne as well. I'm not sure what happened there. I suspect it might have been too hot. The weather might have been too hot, but I don't know what happened there, really. They also put a company in the Californian Valley that became the Wine Valley of California. And if I'm not mistaken, Muente Chandon was the first international company to do a venture there, and it went very well. I mentioned, I think, somewhere that he brought the first bottle of the champagne that came out in California for me to taste. I remember exactly where I was. I was in Kid Bethune department, and he gave me the, a glass of the champagne to taste, and I tasted it, and I said, oops, 
This tastes better than the French one. And he said, shh, don't tell anyone. So we had a good giggle about that. But then afterwards, Wit and Hennessy also made a merger. They became part of the big company as well, Hennessy. It was quite funny because Wit de Chandon, there was one private plane. But then when they merged with Hennessy, there were two private planes. And the Hennessy plane was even bigger than the Wit one, which we always took from Le Bourget. It was very easy to hop on the plane because, you know, the migrations was simple, very, very simple. It's actually quite funny, but I think a lot of people were rather enticed to have private planes. But of course, nobody realized how much it cost to maintain a private plane like that because it does. It's a very expensive. Yeah, that's a lot of money. A lot of money you have to have, extra money, you know, because I remember even my brother-in-law bought a plane at the time and it didn't last very long because it was ridiculously expensive. And if you're not, in this case for them, it was also a flying advertising campaign because I'm not sure about Hennessy, but Mouet Chandon never made any advertising. They didn't do any advertising, public advertising at all. And everything was done as public relations. And of course, Fred was a fabulous PR man to be at the face of the company and doing all the PR for the company, which also included at, at that time already all of the perfumes and makeup of Dior, which was huge and growing. And they had lots of perfumes. Perfumes sell extremely well. They're not expensive to produce and they, they sell extremely well. And when you have a name on the perfume bottle that is already famous, it helps even more. Yeah, it was very interesting. There was a, quite a funny story referring to the perfumes of Dior. Way after Fred and I had split up and I was already living in Peru, one of the trips I went to the States, I don't know what to do, but it was like three or four years after I'd left. You know, I was living in Peru already. And I suddenly was up in, in New York and came across Fred. I remember being in the hotel room with his, I don't know if they were married yet, but future wife, who was this British woman. And she wanted to give me a bottle of perfume as a gift, which was, I, I didn't look at the name at that particular moment when she's trying to hand me the gift. But Fred immediately intervened saying, oh, no, 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 she doesn't use perfume. She never uses perfume. She won't like that. There's no point in giving it to her. And I said, well, it doesn't matter, Fred, because I was thinking I'd give it away to somebody else. <laughs> then after I accepted the gift and I took it, of course, I didn't look at it then. I just put it in my bag and off I went. But then when I looked at the bottle that was in my bag, it was poison, which means poison. And I thought it was hilarious, actually, because I, I don't know if it was a direct message she was giving me. Take this poison and, you know, get out of the way. It's sort of uh, but it was hilarious. I laughed my head off when I saw the name. I thought it was hilarious. But anyway. They still sell that perfume. Oh, I'm sure they do. I think it did very well. It was quite a, I always call things when they're strong, pungent, you know, a pungent smell. Certainly not my kind of cologne because I had a habit of going to England and buying either florist colognes or Penhaligon's colognes, which I loved. And I always wore those. They were my favorites. And it's only now that I like Guerlain. Before it was always those British colognes. I always used to fly over and get two or three bottles and bring them back, you know. But the one I did like actually a little bit was Eau Sauvage. But Eau Sauvage was also Dior but for men. But I yes. liked that because it was fresh. It was a fresh colour. So I sometimes wore that, I must admit. Fred's advertising campaigns had to do with even showing up at the best restaurants. For instance, all the best top chefs were friends of Fred's. And they used to get together, for instance, sometimes at the restaurant above of Castel with about four or five chefs from all the best restaurants in Paris. And they'd get together and, and have a real feast. 
you know. And Fred was doing the whole palaver with the champagne and the drinks and everything was always on him, of course. And then another way that he used to do a lot of advertising in the sense that it was always social advertising, was uniting unlikely people like, for instance, the chefs and the racing drivers. So the racing drivers would be cooking and fishing and the, the chefs would be driving the cars, for instance. If you had a good driver, it would be all right. But if you had a bit of a dangerous one, it was a dangerous thing. But that, for instance, used to go in Epernay at this place, L'Orangerie, which was uh, over the way from the offices. It was a very nice place and it had a long pool where they could fish and they would prepare everything, of course, for these events. Oh, and, and then the festivities and parties and things at night and all that kind of thing would be at a Chateau Saron, which is a chateau that uh, Moutet-Chandon still has now where they do a lot of events and things. So it was rather fun, I must say. And then, of course, they were always the winning champagne at every race. So every important car race, all the Grand Prix, the fun thing for the driver was to, after to having opened won, the bottle. Was, yeah. Yeah, exactly. He would shake it and then pop the cork and spray everybody with a champagne. Of course, it was a big, huge bottle, no? It's, it's things like that, you see. So that's why we were also always at Monte Carlo for the Grand Prix. But the Monte Carlo was not just for the spray of the champagne at the end of the race. Fred would take a, a huge terrace on the most uh, expensive hotel of Monte Carlo where he would have the place for the whole of the weekend, receiving people all the time with excellent food and champagne and wines, because of course they had wines as well. And so a lot of people would go through there. I mean, everybody, you know, at some point would go to that place no, where Fred would often be. In fact, he would spend most of his time there. I would have a pass so that I could go even on the, go across the racing course and stuff like that. I could get around everywhere with my pass, which was rather fun, actually, because I did really enjoy the races, I must say. It was all a very interesting experience. The amount of companies that Moet de Chandon already had, I couldn't be precise, but I know they had other brands that were sold even at the chemists, other brands that were also like bols, which were lic other liqueurs and things that, that were also important at the time. There was a lot of work to be done and a lot of business, important business to deal with, no? which he enjoyed. I never, ever, ever heard him complain. Never. Never complained about work. Never complained about business. Never complained about, about my behavior either. And he was just a very nice character, very pleasant person to be around with, you know. I remember he had a phrase which is very interesting and I remember it up until now, which is, on peut avoir des remords, mais jamais des regrets. You can have a remorse, in other words, feel bad about having done something, but you should never have a regret of not having done it. So that stuck to me. That stuck to me. I always remember that. So... I guess I didn't have any remorse or regrets because I don't have any regrets. He used to do a business trip in the north of uh, Germany on an island called Silt, which was an amazing thing. Every year he would do this trip to Silt, which is Silt is a, there's a place in Silt, it's called Kampen, and it's a, a nudist beach. It's a nudist beach. So you have all the chicest people in the whole of Germany, all the big names, were all there at this big party that Fred Chandon would have in Silt, no? in Kampen. And everybody would be there with their beautiful drag gowns and their jewels and everything thing like this and I remember inviting my girlfriend Valerie to come and join me and you know come with me for my sake this is you know otherwise I'll be bored to tears but at least we can have a good giggle and so she would come and we would go to this party and everybody would be dressed in the next day go to the beach but the beach was nudist and I remember Valerie didn't want to go nude I said but Valerie you're going to be the one that's going to be the odd one out everybody looking at you because you're not naked if you're naked nobody looks at you you don't even look you just stop naked don't worry about it you know boy it cost her it just did but she, she realized she had to do it 
it because otherwise she felt uncomfortable. But it was only one day, one beach day. But it was a funny experience. And of course, Gunther was another person who also went to Kampen because it was the place where all the Germans would go. I can't remember what time of the year it was. It must have been summer, obviously, because it wouldn't be winter. And, uh, you know, there were other celebrations as well, sometimes uh, Oktoberfest, things like that. So there were business trips that I would go sometimes with Fred as well. This is a pleasure, of course, but just to have a good time. He was just delighted that I would go with him. But was, and so life went on like this, but it was also something that I didn't like that much, which was that everybody was screwing around with everybody else. But that was also the time, it was a bit like that, you know, flower power and all this stuff going on and the hippies and all these things. Yeah, there was a lot of sexual freedom and drug freedom. That's right. There was a lot of this going on. I found it fun in the beginning because it felt exciting, but then it just felt too much. It was too much going on. You know, there really is too much. This going on here, this going on there. It's crazy, you know. It overwhelmed me. I remember once in a gathering that we were, I was with, actually, I remember it was Philip Miakos was there. And we were having a hell of a good time. And, you know, there was the usual drugs out on the table and stuff. And everybody did that, you know. And I went out, I was wearing a scarf, a colored scarf. It was my mother's, in fact. And I went out into the kitchen and I wrapped it around my head. I came out as if I was a maid cleaning up the next day. Oh, no, what a mess these people have left. Oh, God, what do they think I am? You know, cleaning up this mess. Ah, look at this powder all over the place. <laughs> and of course, everybody would be roaring with laughter because that was some other fun. So with lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. These sort of things went on and it was fun, but I just decided that I just had enough. And I, I remember saying to Fred, you know, Fred, I, I can't go on like this. I'm leading your life, you know. Also, another place we used to go down to was Louvois. He had a beautiful castle on the outside of Champagne and Vepernay and it was a beautiful castle and he would go to work and I would stay there and he had a little dog there and I loved this little dog and we would go off for nice walks in the park and around the property and, and it was just such fun you know and I remember saying to Fred at one point I said I think I'd like to have a dog and I think that is what really spilt the water because he said no and it's too complicated to have a dog it wasn't like everybody had dogs huh? at that time nobody had dogs if I really think about who had a dog at that time in their house and they share their life with the dogs? I can't remember anybody. I can't remember. One single person had a dog. Nobody. But this little dog lived in Louvain, poor little thing. He was all alone all the time. Well, obviously, he got on with the maids, but it was sad, you know? So I thought, well, I, I maybe can have a little dog, you know, company me and be rather fun. And when he said no, I thought, oh, no, that's just too much. It's just like, you know, I can't have a dog. I don't decide anything. He decides. He does everything. And I said, you know, Fred, this can't go on like this. I remember saying to him at one point, who is going to climb? over you to get to me. Nobody. Everybody respects you and I'm delighted everybody respects you and everybody absolutely adores you. But nobody's going to climb over you to get to me, you know. Even though there were a couple of occasions where I did have a small affair. I remember with an actor, a French actor called Claude Brasseur. We had a small, brief fling. Went, I remember, to Courchevel and skied and stuff. And then suddenly I thought, I just can't 
deal with this. It's too complicated. This I went to build a business partner, not his girlfriend, by the way, his business partner, and so that was that. So that was clean cut, ciao, finished. But it wasn't that brief. It, you know, it went on for about a couple of months, and then I also had another escapade with a photographer, very nice, absolutely delightful French photographer, François Lamy, and he wanted me to live with him. And he had this lovely little. It was his flat, really, a very nice decoration because he had very, very, very good taste. But one of the little windows where his bedroom area was, gave on to the cemetery, the famous cemetery in the Quartier Latin. I remember saying to him, if I'm with you, the thing is, I don't want to do pictures with you. Just get on with your work. I'll get on with my work and we'll, we'll be together. You know, not a problem. But he couldn't resist it. He couldn't resist it. So he wanted to work with me and he kept insisting. And so I said, okay, well, if we do any work together, it'll have to look like a movie set. Yeah. And those pictures are amazing. They're fantastic. Amazing. He really did. He really did make it look like a movie set for me. And I felt like a movie star. They were really incredible photographs. But then I, I went off to Italy where I also had another affair with another photographer who was actually rather nice, Rocco Mancino. And every time I would walk into the hotel, I don't know what kind of business he had because the father of his wife was the owner of the Hotel Grand Hotel de Milan, which is the most important luxury hotel in Milan. He always had the studio at this hotel called Hotel Diana, which was absolutely divine at that time. His sister did too. She got an apartment there as well. And she said, you come and stay with me. Don't stay at the hotel. You stay with me. And so I used to sometimes stay with the sister, who was also great fun. And Rocco had the studio at the end of the garden of the Hotel Diana. And the Diana Hotel was, was lovely. And I remember one day coming across Ceruti. He was staying there and I was at the bar having a drink. And he came up to me and he said, so I want to ask you a question. And I said, yeah, what's up, dog? You know? And he said, I want to ask you, why are you in this racketeer business? He said, oh, I said, well, I have fun. You shouldn't be in this business. You're too nice to be in this business. I remember so clearly him saying this to me. But it didn't make a whole difference. I also remember at one point when we were doing the shows, this was already almost at the end of my stay in, in Europe because in the process of saying to Fred, you know, who's going to climb over you to get to me? We came to a sort of an agreement that when we were traveling, he could do what he wanted. I could do what I wanted. Basically, it was just giving me permission to do what I wanted, you know, anything. I could go to bed with whoever, whoever I want. I could be with whoever I wanted, what I could do whatever I wanted, no? Didn't have to say or report home or anything. So I did. And it became horrible. It became worse because rather than just having the odd affair here and there, it became like, oh my God, who was I with last night? I can't remember. It was a nightmare. I couldn't remember who I was with. It was like, oh God. And then I'd go off to Rome and it would be one night with one and then the other night with, oh my goodness. <gasps> what I did last night, what I have done. What did I do? This is terrible. I can't remember. I can remember. He was very good looking. But what was his name? <laughs> so that went on. It was just too much. I just was tired of all this thing, you know. I remember saying this to Fred and, and Fred was rather sad because, you know, he really had been planning that, that this could last and this would go on. And I remember even doing a trip to Rome at one point and seeing L'Avocato d'Urso, who was the dear neighbor of Fred's in Conca de Marini, where Babo d'Urso, he convinced Fred to buy some of the little houses down below and, and fix them up with an architect and convert them into one house for them to come and stay, which we did. And it was wonderful, no? And Francesca, his wife, had the upstairs floor with her studio. And then he would go down some stairs as the kitchen. And up down some more stairs, there's a lovely terrace, and then a couple more steps, and you'd come into the living room, which went out on another long terrace on the other side, and then a staircase that started going down, children's bedrooms, further down to another 
big bedroom that had been Coco Chanel's room yeah. because she had designed the tiles that were on the floor of this room with a blue bed cover. And the tiles are also in the bathroom that was never touched. It was just kept oh. untouched. It was lovely because we used to go down to the sea and everything was done on a boat. Not a fancy boat, just a paka paka, you know? Paka 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 paka. So you'd go on a boat and you'd go around the corner to Positano, for instance, to the nightclubs at night. We'd go to Positano on the paka paka and come back on the paka paka. And literally, we'd go off on another boat to Amalfi, maybe, shopping to buy stuff. And things like that, but it'll all be done on a boat. The other option was climbing up 355 stairs to the road. Out of the question, nobody did that. So anyway, Babo Durso lived there in the house above, this lovely house that Fred had in Conca de Marini. And when I spoke to him, I was having lunch with him at his house in Rome. I told him, you know, I was leaving and everything. And, and Babo said, well, that apartment is yours, Susie. That apartment is yours. You have to keep that apartment. I said, well, I'm not after the money, Babo. But it's your apartment, you know, you should keep it. But you see, I was never interested in money. And I think that was also one of the things that Fred liked. And how did he notice that? Clearly, Isabel, you know, when he asked me if he, when I wanted a car, I asked for Volkswagen. Anybody else would ask for Porsche, yeah. surely, or a Mercedes-Benz or something, you know. I was never interested in his money, you see. Like, I was not interested in his title either. It was Count Chandon de Briay, of course, but it was just, it was just Fred, it was Fred. Fred Chandon for me. Everybody would rather be called La Comtesse Chandon than uh, whatever, you know. Um, and there was so much respect for Fred, really. You know, he was a real gentleman, which was a wonderful thing to be with a gentleman. A person who was always not only impeccably dressed, impeccably spoken, impeccably behaved, behaved impeccably. The treatment was always impeccable. Never, never raised his voice. I never heard him get angry or anything, really. You don't remember any fight? No, I was trying to think why. Or discussion. He once, got, he once got angry with me. I was being a pain in the neck. Obviously, I had too much to drink. In the house of the country, I can't remember why, but he got angry there. Slapped the table and banged the table down, furious. I thought, oh, what was that about? No, that was it. That was no, never, ever heard him get angry or anything. So I must have been a real pain in the neck. Life in Paris was, I was really quite Parisian living in Paris because, for instance, I used to go to the Hotel Plaza and the corner there's a little restaurant, not, not a little restaurant, a very nice restaurant, part of the Hotel <laughs> Plaza. It's called Le Relais Plaza. And it's such a sort of fixture having lunch there. So often the head waiter decided, I'm going to give you a table because you're always here and you're, everybody wants to see you. He gave me a little table right at, at the door. <laughs> it was very funny. And another thing I remember doing there, I, what's it called? This, this sort of a raw hamburger. It's, it's just you know, like a raw hamburger, but normally you, cook, you, you eat it raw. You don't cook it. So I used to ask them to put it on the pan, a hot cooking thing. Huh? Just give it a toast on the front, one side and a toast on the other side. And that just delicious, you know, it just seals it a tiny bit, makes the flavor come out more. It was just a really delicious thing to do. So he would do that. And other people started asking for it as well. But you know, the funny thing about this business of being with an older man, I was thinking about this. It sort of attracts other older men, a Peruvian man who used to come to Paris often because at that time it was the time of the revolution in Peru and we had a military government and so he was exiled in Spain. So it wasn't far for him to come from Spain to Paris. Are we, are we going to say his name? Manuel Ulloa. Manuel Ulloa <laughs> Elias, people. You're listening right. right here. It's not longer a legend. It's true. He used to 
would pop up in Paris all the time, but he would also call me at night. I remember that was one of the calls that Fred really didn't mind at all, because he would call at two o'clock in the morning sometimes. He had no respect for anybody. Manuel was a real terrible guy. Very funny, very intelligent, very witty. Another thing he would do, suddenly show up at Castel. I guess he was a member there, because he had to be a member to get into Castel. And he would suddenly show up. I remember one day I was sitting at the bar down in the nightclub because it was a great club. You'd go in, there was a bar up at the top on the ground level, small bar where you could just have drinks and everybody would arrive there and cross the other side. There were these red and white checkered tablecloths and it was like a little beast hall. And then you would go up the stairs to the second floor up, up at the top. That was chic food. But you would also go down the stairs to the basement and that area was a discotheque. There was good music and there's good dancing going on. One day I was down there at the bar, just getting myself a drink. And suddenly Manuel was there, you know, standing next to me. And I said to him, oh, what are you going to give up? This is too much. You know, you keep popping up all over the place. You're impossible. When the hell is this going to stop? You know, it was just a pain in the neck and showing up here and showing up there. But the amazing thing was that Fred really didn't care. He was not jealous. Fred was not jealous, ever. Not jealous of anybody. Because there was another guy who used to show up all the time in Paris when it was the polo season. An Argentinian who lived in Chile who was called Tato Gelona. Big tall guy. Also older guy. And he always used to call me up. Always used to look for me and this and the other. All the time. And then another one who used to show up who was very interesting and, well, we did get along was this very famous playboy called Gunter Sachs whose claim to fame was marrying Brigitte Bardot. In fact, Brigitte Bardot was his second wife. But he was interesting because he was a playboy. He loved to be surrounded by a lot of women. But he got married to a very nice Swedish wife, his third wife, because his first wife died when his father committed suicide, I learned the other day. Google gives you all this information that leaves from the hair standing up on end because Gunther had committed suicide as well because he couldn't stand age. I couldn't understand that because he was not a man to, to age well. You know, he really enjoyed life so much. There's no way he was going to put up with aging pains and this and that. But by must, it was a hell of a shock when I found out that he died. Fred told me, in fact. And I was living in Peru then. But still, getting back to Gunter, Gunter used to show up all the time in Paris. And he didn't have an apartment in Paris. That's the point. He didn't have an apartment in Paris. But he used to show up all the time. In fact, I think I have a cutting somewhere of me that some... This newspaper, yeah. And newspaper. Because there were always photographers waiting around, you know, to see if they could catch a photograph of somebody famous with somebody else or and especially if it was illegal sort of thing anyway they did they published that with a comment because I was wearing a, a t-shirt that said high voltage there's a piece I remember seeing it I think the headline was uh, Gunter's new girlfriend or something like that she's warning him to be careful or something you might get your bur fingers burnt or something like that because it said high voltage something like that we'll, we'll find the country it was amazing the way this young little bee would attract all these bumblebees you know they'd be hovering around all over the place it was amazing but they did all notice that I was not interested in one they did they caught on to that one and so went on my life you know but I definitely decided I had to leave and so a producer showed up suddenly in Paris he was a, a record producer and he suddenly showed up in Paris at the fashion shows and he let everybody know that he was looking for a model that could sing everybody started pointing that's the one you want to go to that's the one you want to talk to and it was me You know, they all knew I sang. I used to sing sometimes. They said, that's the one you want. That's the one you want. So he came up and 
talk to me. And he convinced me to go to London to prepare for a record. So I thought, bingo, that's my opportunity to go, to leave. This is it. This is my chance to get away. And so I went to England and another thing popped up in England, which is also very interesting because a friend of mine's mother used to go out with this very well-known British actor called Michael Medwin, who'd been in many, many, many series in, in England. He was very, very famous in England. And she was a very good friend of his. This is Valerie Kate's mother who lived in Marbella as well. Anyway, he was a producer as well. He was a producer and he was also one of the judges in equity. You had to belong to equity to be able to act in England. You had to be a member of equity, accepted by equity to act. And he was one of the judges. There you are, you see, that's a pretty lucky thing. Anyway, he decided he wanted to make a movie called The Rachel Papers, also in London, when I was there. And he had the script, which he gave to me, and he said, what I want to do is make it like, a, as if it was a synopsis of the movie. And I picked out this bit, and you're going to be the actress of The Rachel Papers. And I've chosen this guy to be the actor, but I'm not sure if I've done the right thing. But he's just hit the planks, the planks you call the planks when you're in, in the theatre, no? He's just hit the planks and he's doing a good job. So, but I don't know if he's able to do anything else. What he's doing is interesting, but we'll see. Anyway, I've decided he's going to be the one and we're going to be shooting in such and such a day. So you get your act together and I'll tell you where we're going to shoot and everything and off we go. So we did that and we shot the synopsis and I did a pretty good job of the thing, but the thing didn't work. He wasn't able to use it to rustle up the money. The idea was that with that, he would get the money to make the movie. But the actor that he had chosen was definitely not the right guy because that actor was the one who became Mr. Bean. Yeah, Rowan Atkinson, who has just... R Rowan Atkinson, exactly. But much way. later on, he developed this personage called Mr. Bean, which is very funny and people loved him a lot. But at that particular moment, he was just coming out, you see. He was in a play doing a, a good job there. But as he said, I'm not sure if he's the right guy. You know, when you have a doubt, the doubt is what sticks. Never have a doubt. You've got to sort out doubts. Anyway, that didn't work. But he did write me a letter, an absolutely wonderful letter, congratulating on me on a job I did and really wishing me the best of luck because he really could tell that I, I was a natural actress. He could see, he could tell. And that it definitely would go very, very well for me. But he was just miserable that it hadn't worked out for this thing, you see. You already had I, made the movies in Paris, right? Yeah, I had. And he knew that. And that's why he tried his luck, you see. But if I stayed in England, I would have gotten other opportunities. Because the good thing is that when you have somebody like him, who's one of the judges in equity, you've almost got the door open. Yeah, you would have you other know. castings, of course. Yeah, I would have other castings and I'd have him as a sort of mentor, you know. In the daytime, I would be singing and practicing with these penniless musicians because the producer had a flat that was not far from my sister's house in London. So I could walk across and go and practice and sing with these musicians. And then at night, I would be going out with Michael Medwin and whatever actor would be in town because all the best actors, Italians and others that would come into town would always call up Michael and he would always invite them out to lunch or dinner and he would take me along because I was just fun. You know, and I was an asset to have at the table. <laughs> And during all of this havoc, you know, because on top, Lamy was wanting to do photographs of me and let's go and do these photographs in Italy and this, the other. And it was, I was getting bombarded from all the fronts and I was rather tired of this chaos I was in. So I thought, ah, I need a holiday. And I decided to come to Peru for a holiday. And that's where things changed. And that's where I definitely did leave because I decided to come to Peru for a holiday. So I'm afraid that'll have to be another chapter of the podcast. Do you regret coming to Peru? I have no regrets in my life at all. Every experience is different. This is a country where where I've longed to live in and it's a country that I love very much even though the situation sometimes politically is so chaotic and we're really <laughs> tired of it 
Yes. And I wonder who the hell is going to take the reins of this country. I wish I had the courage and the, the strength to do it. But there are wonderful people here and there are wonderful possibilities. The country is full of wealth and we have a lot of poverty, but only because we've got the wrong people Definitely. running the country. Those who present themselves and say lies and people fall for the lies and they don't know how to vote. And then they, we get in a worse mess every time. But anyway, let's remember the nice things. I think it's, la- it's a very important thing that you just have said and, and a nice way to end this episode that in life it's very important to have no regrets because everything teaches us something. Absolutely. You never know, but you have to be willing to get out of your comfort zone. My life with Fred was very, very, very comfortable, extremely comfortable. And I was short of nothing and and he would give me anything and I could do whatever I like. He sounds like a very intelligent man, not just business intelligent, but also like emotional intelligent. He sounds like an amazing person. I'm so jealous that you have had such an amazing partner in your life. I was lucky. I was very lucky. I was lucky that he got a some kind of a pang for me. You know, that was the thing because it all happened so inadvertently, not suspecting, not even wondering what the hell's going on. Not, not even that. Nothing. It just went on. It just proceeded step after a step. He obviously had a plan of some kind to see how far I can go with this. And he did it. He managed it. Definitely his intention was to to make me totally happy and live happily ever after, which I guess it could have been, but I felt an urge to experiment my own life, you know, because of course, having been swept off my feet so young, I missed out on all the trying times that one can have as you go discovering life, you know, as a young person, because it all was definitely easy with Fred. No worries about uh, money, what to do, where to go. Everything was solved, you know, which obviously when I left and went off, nothing was solved. And I rather liked that. I took some quite important decisions after that as well. But I was a happy person with friends. I'm very, very grateful of having had this wonderful, marvelous experience and relationship with a wonderful, kind man. Thank you, Susie, for sharing this story with us. I think it will teach many people how there are different ways to love. I think it's important to have values. You know, one might think, ah, but you were a lover. It didn't start like that and was not my intention to be a lover. I wasn't really his lover because he left his wife and he didn't live with her. He lived with me. So how would you call that? There was a legality in the middle of the illegality, if you like. There were no lies. It was transparent. We had a good time. I mean, I used to have the greatest time in the parties of Jacqueline de Ribes and all the most chicest people in Paris. All the ones that are still alive on the perch, as, as Willie would say. They're still in touch. They all know me perfectly well. They all know I had a great time in Paris. We all did. We had the best time, really. Very lucky to have lived at that at that time. Thank yeah. you, Susie, again. Um, thank you for everyone listening. We'll be posting pictures about the episode. And if you're interested or have any questions, feel free to leave them on, on the Instagram account, which is lovely Susie Dyson. Well, thank you for listening. And we'll be back with some more interesting stories. Goodbye, people. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.